Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 118, recorded on August 10th of 2020. Uh, the show where uh, we geek out about photo stuff. Uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and uh, every week we uh, we stories that have crossed his wire, as it were, and uh, I get to sit down with uh, a good friend usually and uh, and just discuss and talk shop and, and have a lot of fun while we do it. Um, so this week's guest, I have uh, uh, Stefan Bollinger here with me from uh, australia I'm how are you very this morning, sir? well over the long day well for you it's august 11th i should clarify we are in the future days, and i'm sorry to break it to you the hoverboard does still not exist well uh thank you for that i suppose <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been a while since we've chatted. It's been a while since I've had you on the show, uh, Stefan. So what, uh, what, what's new with you before we get into the story? Well, uh, I was on your show 11, if I remember that correctly. That it was, Yeah, it was, and, and I didn't have you back. Uh, you, it was just that awful. Yeah, and, and you mentioned... <laughs> I, I just, it's a scheduling conflict with you being halfway around the world. And you mentioned sometimes you have friends on the line. Um, I, I guess I put you back onto the friends list now that you invited me back. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks. Um, so... Uh, how are things in uh, in Queensland? Is I am are, in right? Queensland. We are the lucky state um, with this whole pandemic and the craziness that is going on. We are exceptionally lucky. Uh, the premier in Queensland has decided to close the borders even to other states. So there's actually police controls uh, and border controls so that even other states cannot come in. And uh, that... Mm, it's, it's very difficult for me personally because I'm on a specialty visa in Australia. So if something would happen to my family in Switzerland, if I would leave Australia, I could not come back in. So I would have to make a decision between my mother in Switzerland or my family here in Australia. That's how strict they are. But at, at the same time, uh, they were able to keep the trouble quite far away when you look at what the dramatic uh, situation in the US at the moment. So, well, yeah, and uh, surges in other parts that uh, had previously had a spike, and now they're starting to see an upward tick as well, or other places that are just starting to get their first real, uh, you know, showcase of this uh, this crazy coronavirus. And so it's still on everybody's mind, right? Like, it's one of those things that I don't think is going to be going away anytime soon. Um, and, uh, you know, there's doom and gloom all over the world, <laughs> which kind of... That, that's my horrible segue uh, to our first story, <laughs> which uh, has to do with, uh, with Canon. And uh, I'd seen this report, I think, last week, and it was a questionably a, a minor thing, and apparently it's a bigger one. So uh, reported by DP Review that Canon had 10 terabytes of data stolen from its servers in a ransomware attack. Now, that, that title is a bit misleading to me because... Ransomware attacks typically hold your data for ransom by encrypting them, right? They don't download them from you. Um, they keep them where they are, and they just encrypt them. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, I guess, misinformation about this. But Canon, as a large company, uh, you know, a lot of their domains have been affected. You've got, of course, CanonUSA.com and Canon.com, um, but CanonBroadcast.com, canonccTV.com and and so many other uh, you know subsidiaries of like basically everything that Canon had that was was worthwhile uh, has been uh, 
affected. Uh, what do you think about big corporations? We see this almost every week. Um, Garmin was uh, uh, was brought down by ransomware, and and by some accounts, they might have paid uh, to get their data back. What do you think this is going to do to Canon, especially when they're in the middle of a big launch and they've had some other crisis mode stuff to deal with with overheating cameras? Yeah, well, I think the the one thing that we have to separate is that Canon is not equal Canon. You know, uh, for for most DSLR users or uh, you know mirrorless camera users, we think of Canon as this camera manufacturer. But as you mentioned, CCTV and 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 and, and you know their their business is going far far further. Now, if someone holds them ransom for camera data, well, that's a small issue. The bigger issue is when it comes to security. Uh, camera systems and and these sort of because that involves not just Canon but all the companies that use their services, which could be uh, quite substantially far further reaching uh, reaching than people might think. What I've oh yeah, I mean the the, the print industry and uh, and and uh, client records of different exactly. things and um, you know I I looked up though the one one item in this list kind of stood out for me as being odd. Uh, in terms of the URLs that were affected, the services that were affected. And it was um, something called imageland.net. Okay. And, uh, of course, their websites are all down right now, so I couldn't look it up and see what it is now. But with the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine, I was able to go back. Now, the first date that they had was in 2006, where this website was properly indexed. And so imageland.net, at least in 2006, was uh, where you can become master of a Canon digital imaging universe. And that includes uh, the WebView LiveScope, uh, live uh, view and access live images from around the world. You can control Canon's live cameras in place, uh, sorry, in places like Times Square, Paris, London, Tokyo, Sydney, and Rome. What could ever go wrong with that? <laughs> uh, and Canon Print Planet, creative projects you can personalize and print at home, which is much more benign. Now, that was well over a decade uh, ago. Uh, I, I'm poking fun at it because at letting somebody go in and starting to control your electronics from an outside network wasn't a good idea back in 2006. Um, and so who knows <laughs> what little uh, fragments of code or unpatched operating systems or whatever has led to this. It happens to everybody, no matter how uh, how prominent they are. Yeah, think, so uh, now it's Canon's yeah. turn, and we'll see how they uh, come out yeah, of that. Think, think of it a, a little bit further. When you are Canon that offers also printing services and private people send or upload their photos to be printed if they don't go through a direct lab or a lab is using Canon services out of nowhere, there might be a ton of personal information in terms of pictures and so on in the hands of other people. Where I really wonder how these things happen I've worked at Euler Packard a, a millennia ago. That was just after the dinosaurs walked in the backyard. And even back then, I realized that a lot of the subsidies of Euler Packard were dealt with from the same security company. So it all comes down to splitting these things. So how can any hacking entity access all of those domains at the same time? 
the only way to do so is that they are all managed by a few people who probably set up all the domains. And once, and, and that might be Joe Blow that always uses the, the password of his first name, daughter. And, you know, uh, companies have to learn that they have to separate those things, that they're completely independent uh, uh, systems. But of course, that's that's not feasible. You have uh, certain people who look after all of that. And once you have access to one, you have access to all. And that's, I think, that's what the, this sh uh, story shows, that obviously they gained access to one. And voila, the magic door opened, open sesame, here is all of us. And that's scary. Yeah, and 10 terabytes of data. I mean, it can be understood that Canon probably has a heck of a lot more than 10 terabytes yeah. of data stored in their various servers. But, but I mean, shouldn't there be, like, um, some code or algorithm on their servers that would understand that, hey, we're sending massive amounts of data to the same IP address in some outside place well before they hit the amount of 10 terabytes worth of traffic, right? That just, uh, it seems like bad housekeeping. To uh, me. It does. But I mean, it's, it's a, you know, another reminder that we are small people. We're not Canon. We're not Nikon. We're not HP. We're not Dell. But we also have to make sure that we get our stuff in order. Because it can, you know, the ransomware thing can happen to every individual, and oh, and it has, and and, uh, and people have been asked to pay like multiple bitcoins, which is many multiple thousands of dollars, to get their data decrypted. And um, there's one. So how do you protect yourself? It's called backup. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it's so so simple when you think about it. If you run your daily backup, and if you don't go crazy with cloud services. You're pretty good. And, and I guess um, if something sounds too good to be true, like those amazing links that you get in your emails that you won a gazillion dollars, click here. I mean, I think it comes down to being a little bit street smart, not believing everything, and running your backup. It's that simple. If someone wants to steal... Uh, the latest photo that I've uploaded through Instagram of my daughter winning a 100-meter race against whatever, go for it. Take that photo, enjoy it. Um, when it comes to my business, I'm very hesitant to use cloud services. Well, for various reasons. A, it's too slow still if you work with huge amount of data. Um, but... Um, I run everything everything local and I run my backups. And if someone wants to ransom me, then I'll send them an email saying, good luck. I'll just restore the backup from yesterday. Yeah, well, and I've got, uh, I've got a network-attached storage device here that um, is my main copy, and it has redundancies in terms of hardware failure. Um, and, uh, but I've got so much data on that that it's difficult for me to have two complete copies of everything, of every raw file and, and everything else. So You should. 
what I'll typically do is, number one, make sure that that is uh, air-gapped at least a little bit uh, from the outside network. I can't access it from uh, my Wi-Fi. It's not connected to my router or the outside internet. It's just a direct plug-in to my computer when it's here on my desk. And if I want to write emails sitting on the back porch or whatever, uh, I can do that. That's fine, but I don't have access to my files. And I'm just trying to be safe uh, you know, in that regard. And what if somebody did, you know, get into my computer through nefarious means and then find access to that network device? Well, all of my finished work and all of my contracts and uh, business documents and things like that, they're all on a portable hard drive that's never connected to anything unless I'm updating it. Yes. Uh, the other and, thing, and so that's the other thing not to forget is that you have to have your offsite backup. I understand I'm working in the same field as you, obviously. Uh, it's getting worse now because I'm doing so much video work for customers. Uh, I'm Right now I'm sitting in, in a recording studio and uh, audio and video, you know, it's a multitude of data in, to, in compared to my photography. So data or amount of data is a huge issue, but... Um, I'm also fully aware that we have flooding. We have bushfires here in Australia. It it can... Somebody breaks in and steals all of your stuff. They don't care what's on that exactly. big fancy-looking box. They're just going to take it and resell it or pawn it. Yes, exactly. So I have to make sure that I do have my backups offline. And I have to... Re, I have to be 100% honest with you, I'm a little bit lazy sometimes. So I have, I have a, a big RAID system that sits at my studio, which obviously is physically detached. Um, and I might take that RAID system back into my home studio where I, where I have most of my data, maybe, I don't know, twice a year. I should do it every month. I don't. Uh, but at least I do it maybe twice or three times a year. And then it takes three days to copy everything over. But then I know if my house burns down, at least I can go back and I don't lose uh, 25 years of work. Yeah. Well, and uh, how do you be 100% perfectly secure? I, I don't think that you can be. Um, I try to do offsite backup as well, although like you, I'm a little lazy sometimes. I have a safety deposit box at the bank that has a hard drive with stuff in it there. Um, I have uh, a, a portable drive that I uh, exchange uh, whenever we visit my mom. Well, not whenever, but sometimes I'll bring a, an updated set of data and take the old one back uh, just because you know, we need to have that offsite idea. Um, and, and honestly, if if the bank and my house and my mom's place are all in somehow destroyed, I think I have bigger problems to worry about um, than than my data. That's correct. I think the the other <laughs> other approach of thinking could be that we might have to prioritize what is actually important. And uh, this sounds so simple, but it's so true. Um, if I lose data that or photos that are created for a client two years ago, who cares really? Because those files have been delivered, that advertising campaign is already printed, it's already in the magazines. What would hurt me personally the most? And that would be the photos of my children when they were just two days old in the hospital. That is something I cannot reshoot. Or uh, the yeah. first day at school. Um, this is something I cannot reproduce. And all that fits easily onto a small little thumb drive. So I can 
at least prioritize what is most important to me. The last few projects, maybe, because if I don't deliver, I don't get paid and then I, the kids have no food on the table. Yes, fair enough. But at the end of the day, I might sound very emotional or whatever, but what is actually really important? Do we take ourselves for too important our work? No. When it comes to my kids, my family, that's the stuff that I want to make sure that I have in several places because this is something I cannot uh, invite a model. I can invite a model back into the studio to reshoot, but I cannot uh, get that photo of, of my first daughter in the hospital again. Yeah, and, and my dad was an early adopter of digital, and uh, there was no backup strategies then. Uh, we lost a lot of stuff when we upgraded a computer and just threw out the old one and forgot to back up all the images that were on it, and it's the only place that they were. So um, there's uh, f maybe three or four years of my life that the only photos that I have are ones that were taken by other people at family gatherings, mm -hmm. but the ones that my dad had taken, they're just all lost in time. And, uh, I mean, that's very unfortunate. Uh, it taught me a lesson about data backup and making sure that you protect those uh, precious memories. Yes, and they are precious. They, they certainly are. Um, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, I, I found this uh, impossible uh, at the beginning. But, hey, you know what? There, there's maybe some reasoning behind it. Also reported from DP Review. Um, a mysterious firmware update turns the Viltrox 85mm f1.8 lens into an even faster f1.6 prime. Oh, it was a prime to begin with. But um, So, I, I don't think I've seen a case of this happening from anybody else, where um, I guess the traditional logic is that a lens is not its sharpest, widest open. It's usually, uh, you know, if you stop it down by half a stop or a stop or something, it gets a little bit sharper, uh, a little bit more, you know, uh, the, the image quality and all the tests. You look at the MTF charts and whatever else, and, and it, it's, it's fairly true to that end. Um, and so what if a manufacturer intentionally made the widest aperture available stopped in a little bit, um, so that the image quality compared to all of the other brethren at uh, f1.8 from every other manufacturer, because that's a pretty uh, hot market. A lot of companies sell a lot of lenses at that focal length as a prime and at that aperture. Um, then if you over-engineer the initial product and then, I don't want to say cripple it, but limit its functionality to just f1.8, is that a smart move? And um, now that it's come to light that it's actually f1.6, why did they just not offer it as that? Uh, do you want the honest answer to that? Oh, please. <laughs> Every lens manufacturer has done this from the beginning. And the reason is simple. Aperture or the iris opens, that's a physical thing. And if you go with, uh, open it to its absolute max mechanically, it's more likely to be stuck because uh, rather than leaving it just slightly closed or slightly open, depending on what direction you go. Yeah. So if you have a lens that is uh, a 1.8, it might in reality be a 1.6. But um, it just opens to 1.8. And of course, we believe what's written on the lens, correct? 
who who goes into the lab and actually tests and has control over opening that iris to its possible fullest unless you take that lens apart and check if at 1.8 it really is 100% uh, open. So it it makes, and, and the, the reason why you can do this now with the firmware update is quite simply because a lens now digitally uh, opens or shuts the, the iris, while in the olden days we did it manually, correct? So so now if if the firmware tells the camera, well, I'm a 1.8, well, then your aperture ring goes to 1.8. But it might be a 1.6, and the manufacturer might be, A, for mechanical reasons of opening the iris, or maybe uh, because of the sharpness that you mentioned, which is a very good point, in both cases, it might be a 1.6 mechanically, but... And, and who knows if Canon, if Nikon, if Panasonic, if Fuji don't do the same thing, but it's all digital now. The contacts tell the camera, I'm a 1.8, and it will open to 1.8. It might be a 1.6. Well, I, I want to come back on, on that thought. That's actually a really good point, that you might have a little bit of play with the, the aperture not going all the way open because it might get stuck. Um, but what if they over-provision with a slightly wider aperture? And um, but the, the the barrel itself has a uh, has a physical uh, limiter, like a, a perfectly round aperture at f one point eight. Like it's part of the barrel and the lens yes. design. And the aperture, if it's any, if it's open any wider than that, it's just it's hidden by that, which gives you that very perfectly circular, non-geometric in any way bokeh uh, in the out-of-focus details. Uh, if you've got specular highlights in the background, you can easily see the geometry of the aperture. Uh, and if it's completely circular, then you're not going to see that at all. Uh, the aperture is not in the equation, right? So what if that aperture is hiding at its uh, sort of second to widest opening, its penultimate opening, uh, and, uh, and then you don't even see it there because you're just seeing this completely circular aperture that the, the main mechanical aperture only appears to create some geometric bokeh when it stops down one stop further than that. Hmm. Yeah. But isn't that also a question of the shape of the of the individual shutter blades within the? Um, I mean, that can be manufactured. Well, right, but I mean, if you have like, if I'm shooting with a um, uh, my my fisheye lens, my 15 millimeter fisheye lens is f 2.8, um, and it's a pentagonal uh, bokeh in the background because it has a five bladed aperture. Yes. Now, that is noticeable, uh, even when shooting uh, just one stop in, but it's not noticeable when you're at f2.8, which means there has to be some other mechanism that's shielding that aperture if what you're saying is true about it not being at its maximum aperture. Say f2.4 might have been it, but I'm still seeing things nice and round, even though uh, a five-bladed aperture is never going to provide me that. Yes, there's the other idea that if you shoot wide open, the opening is wider than the actual lens through to the sensor. So that means that you actually don't even see 
the iris anymore in your pictures. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like you have a, a, an opening that kind of shields the the iris, the diaphragm, so that it's not seen beyond a certain point. Yes, exactly. So what's the point then going from 1.8 to 1.6 if you don't see the difference? Because they didn't put any type of a shield in this particular lens. And you can actually see a slight difference uh, in, the, in the video uh, that, the, that the bokeh does change slightly between those two. And so there is a mechanical difference that is letting more light in because uh, maybe it's poor engineering, maybe it's brilliant. Um, but that is what it is, I think. I guess that's also the difference uh, in price when you look at what you pay for that lens and what you pay for a 1.8 lens from uh, Nikon or, or, or from Canon, um, you know, where, yeah, where, where you add another thousand dollars to it. Well, I mean, let's keep talking about gear for the next story. Um, and this is an age-old question that keeps coming up to me. This is something like white noise in the background. Oh, it's like, God. yeah, there's always going to be somebody talking about that, and I just walk past them and I don't engage. Um, but once in a while, it is worth engaging. Uh, an article on Petapixel, it's actually a video uh, from the Slanted Lens, um, what camera sensor size equivalence is all about. Oh. So I get asked this a lot when I'm comparing um, or when people are asking me to compare specifically micro four thirds with full frame cameras. People are kind of more interested in that because it's a bigger jump um, and saying, oh, well, you know, I've got this um, F 1.2, uh, you know, 30 millimeter lens for micro thir uh, four thirds. It's absolutely beautiful. It's like an F 1.2 60 millimeter lens on a full, frames uh, full frame camera. And it isn't. I mean, it's comparable in terms of the field of view. Uh, that's one thing. But, um, Stefan, what, what, what could you tell people about how an aperture is actually calculated? And it's not based on the size of your sensor, right? Uh, oh, there's so many different factors. I mean, let's, let's put it this way. Uh, I've actually created a whole video about this um, on YouTube if, if people really want to see some... some oh, yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, we, we're... There's actually a 12-minute exploration geeking out over uh, what focal length actually means and, and how the opening of the aperture, the size of the opening of the aperture is actually calculated. And I, I created some uh, visual examples because sometimes maths is a little bit more difficult to, to handle in the, in the head, especially when you then... <clears throat> divide or multiply by the square root of two as 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 geeks know how how physics works but at the end of the day i think this whole conversation is a little bit ridiculous because um does it matter i i always have to say uh, that's why i do it yeah <laughs> it's like does it matter at the end of the day all that matters is how good is the picture if you uh, i'm a portrait photographer mainly and and i always say to people look uh, no matter what gear or camera or focal length I throw at it, if I take a photo of Quasimodo's sister, it's a shit photo because she's just ugly. <clears throat> I'm sorry to say it like that. So okay, no, no, I, that's that's definitely one way to put it. <laughs> you know, so um, I mean, people can go in and, and, and watch that video and, and see, but the the baseline what people have to understand is that the whole idea of these, these F numbers is that you can take a lens, put it on your camera and have a certain exposure. So let's say I put an 85 on my camera and I switch it to a 5.6 and that creates that perfect exposure that I want. So now I take that lens off and put a, a 70 to 200 on. 
I expect that if I set it to 5.6, that I get the same exposure. I get a different field of view, but I want to get the same exposure. Now, the 70 to 200 has much, much larger glass. It's a completely different construction. So, of course, the opening of the iris will be a very different size than on my 85. So, the same applies, and, and the maths is done in the computer, and again, go to that video if you want to, to see how the maths actually works, but the same applies if you change the sensor size, because it's all it's all physics. It's a question of distance, the size from the sensor to the iris, to the lens elements, and, and, and. And taking one, uh, I, I think people have to go online and look up what crop factor actually means instead of, oh, I take this lens and if I put it on that Oh, body, don't do that don't, because you'll find so much misinformation from people that think they know the right answer and then you'll just take that at face value. Yeah, well... So uh, go to a trusted resource um, <laughs> like uh, Cambridge and Color or somebody else that, you know, the, the, the people that actually do their uh, uh, due diligence uh, to make sure that information comes across properly. Yeah, I, th I think it's a weird, weird conversation. I mean, at the end of the day... I mean, you get probably exactly the same questions as I do all the time. Said, what lens should I buy? What camera should I buy? What this and that and the other? And I'm always like, what, what are you going to do with it? It doesn't matter. Well, it's like, okay, somebody comes up to me and asks me, well, what kind of car should I buy? That's not a question I get often, but but it's the same idea. Well, I don't know. Um, do, do you need to tow something? Uh, do you just go around to the corner store once in a while? Do you commute two hours a day? I mean, yeah. if you give me no details and just say, what's the best camera for me? I have no idea. The same way as I have no idea what the best car for you is. Well, let's put it this way. We probably all agree that the Formula One car is probably one of the fastest cars on this planet, right? Yeah, and, and they're not street legal. <laughs> and they're terribly off-road. Yep. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> it's like, it's, well, it's it, if it's, uh, I, I personally go even further because I believe that, and this is, yeah, something I, I uh, maybe that's just me, but I need to go into the store and hold a camera. I don't care about makeup pixels. I don't care about this and that and the other, if it doesn't feel good in my hands, knowing that I will carry this thing day in, day out for eight hours, if it doesn't feel good, that's not a spec that you can, you can find on the internet. How it And it's not just that. It's not just if it feels good. If you're happy with the results. Yes. And whatever the results you're trying to accomplish. Uh, I mean, it's, it's great if the camera is, is convenient, um, but if I'm still not happy with the results, I mean, my phone is a great example. Uh, it's always with me. And yes, I use it quite frequently to take behind the scenes photos, photos, little quick snaps of the family and whatever else, because it's just what's there. It's not my best camera, um, but it's the one that I have at that moment that I'm going to use. And I don't even know what the apertures and, and whatever the behind the scenes on that camera is, because it's not about that. No. Um, and when I get into my serious work, yeah, you know, I, I will look to say, okay, well, f2.8 on my uh, 45 millimeter micro four thirds macro lens, which is an exceptional lens, um, is not the same as f2.8 in terms of the amount of light being let in on a 90 millimeter full frame camera. Because while the field of view might be similar, the 
aperture, the f-stop, is calculated based on the focal length of the lens. And those focal lengths are changing exactly. uh, in order to achieve the same field of view on a different size sensor. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, I encourage people to check out the video uh, on the slanted lens. They, I think it's about nine minutes long. They do a really good job at just kind of dumbing it down to the basics, looking at visual examples so that you can see exactly what that difference is going to be. Um, and they do kind of do a sort of back of the napkin kind of comparison. It's not really to the formulas per se. But neither should it be, because we shouldn't be caught up with the numbers when we're here making art. Yeah, well, I guess... I guess people like to have a formula. It's it seems easy. Uh, what 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 settings do I need for a good portrait? What settings do I need for a good landscape? People like to have formulas um, that they can just dial it in instead of using the eyes, because maybe a totally overexposed photo might exactly be perfect for whatever you do, or maybe a totally underexposed photo. Technically not correct, but maybe it's perfect for what you want to say with your photo. And I think people are too focused on numbers sometimes. I mean, this is a geek show and, and I'm the biggest geek and you're a geek. And, and I think that is actually a badge of honor. But sometimes we have to, you know, step back a little bit and go, okay, what does really count? And how do I see the world? And if I see the world a little bit brighter, a little bit darker, then change it. Go away from focusing so much on numbers. At the end of the day, it's a visual thing. And if everyone does everything perfect, then every photo looks the same. How boring is that? And I'm glad. Some, exactly. You, I'm glad. You can be a perfect technician, but you wouldn't be a photographer. Yeah. And some people might even go out and shoot snowflakes so i don't know just find your own <laughs> hey, thing uh, that's a great example though because my, my work with snowflakes is rather technically based i'm documenting something um, yeah but the idea is not repeat the exact same process and but I, i'm getting something different and then uh after years of doing that i put together this big um snowflake poster print that had 400 of them uh, all in relative scale to one another, and that to me became the the artistic uh, expression at the end of that long project. Yeah, but see, I would like to correct you there, because the I th I think the fundamental question is where in the process is the art, and taking those photos that you do might be a technical discipline. I totally agree because you need to know exactly what you're doing. But coming up with the concept, coming up with the idea, coming up with the passion to do this, this is the art. And that art might happen with pencil and paper long before you go into the technical. So you have to give yourself more credit for the process and don't just call it technical because at the end, the outcome with, with the many different in-proportion snowflakes might be the, the result of your art. But the art of coming up with the concept, the art of having ideas, and then the art of, um, I call it the art of persistence, of not giving up because it's too hard. Yep. <laughs> uh, that, that is something that people sometimes underestimate, where uh, we once in a while have to give ourselves a high five. I know it sounds a little bit arrogant, but uh, so yes, the, the actual actual process of taking a photo might be a technical thing but the concept the idea the persistence the the 
up to the final result altogether. I mean, don't tell me but that Picasso would call putting paint on his paintbrush, he wouldn't call that art. But he needs to know what he wants to paint before he even puts up the easel. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that for me, part of the experimentation, uh, <laughs> like in like actually working and coming up with ideas, and then my initial previsualization has changed, and so on. It, it's art is is a fluid process, I think. But you also have to know where to start and know where you're going to be going, and whether that destination changes uh, doesn't matter because the destination doesn't matter. The act of exploring does, and um, and I think that. Uh, I think that sums that up. And I know you've got a hard out. So I want to make sure we get to the, to the last story, some picks of the week. But before we do, where can people find you online? Well, if they can spell my name, then they find me very easily because I'm everywhere the same. Stefan Bollinger. Um, or they just go to bollinger.co if they like champagne. Well, it's the same spelling. Bollinger. Champagne. Uh, bollinger.co. Um or they go on YouTube and look for SB Weekly, stands for Stefan Bollinger Weekly, where I put a weekly show out on YouTube, where I try to discuss exactly these sort of things, but less on a geeky side, but more geared towards people who are enthusiasts, who love their new camera that they have, but they're not quite sure yet what to do with it. And sometimes it should be, hopefully, I'm... I hope sometimes it should be a little bit more inspirational. Other times it should be a little bit more geeky or a little bit more technical. But I greatly enjoy this, uh, I, especially because I'm getting some uh, awesome private messages back and saying, hey, I finally get it. Thank you so much. And that makes my day. Yeah, and, and I, I get uh, a lot of feedback like that as well. And it's really it's helpful. You know, you take it to heart. I also get some negative ones and I take those oh, to yes. heart too. So thank you for those. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but hey, I, I guess it, it that is kind of like a legacy, you know, that you're educating people and that's timeless content, uh, I'm sure. And talking about that, like uh, legacy and, and whatnot, again, a terrible segue to our final story uh, on uh, reported on My Modern Met. Uh, photographer finds 120-year-old cat photos after developing film found in a time capsule. And that got me really intrigued. I mean, they found some uh, undeveloped but exposed negatives from 120 years ago. What treasures would these be? No, they were developed negatives. Um, They uh, uh, were glass plate negatives of uh, just a family's pets and uh, developed them as a cyanotype. And uh, it's a neat process, actually. If you've never uh, worked with uh, cyanotype printing, it's really, like, pathetically simple to do and it actually encouraged me to try that as just a fun experiment maybe I could a little science experiment I can do with my daughter Uh, and you can do it with a photo you can do it with cutouts and you know uh, just to have some fun uh, as something you can do at home right now Um, but it got me thinking you know you've got a time capsule 120 years later it's opened up and it was photos of the the family's beloved pets uh, and toys from the uh, the daughter French photographer uh, Mathieu Stern uh, found it uh, in his family's attic, and uh, he found cat photos, because, you know, the internet needs more cat photos, and um, the video has been viewed like a a million times. Uh, But more than just that, because the story is what it is. I mean, I've pretty well summed it up. If you could put something in a time capsule this year, the year that, like, everybody wants to forget, 
Um, and uh, to have that be some legacy, something that's remembered about you uh, and your life 120 years from now, what would that be? Wow. That's, um, it's a deep question, actually, when you think about it. It's, I think, you know, time capsule idea is awesome. However, now in the digital age, we create our daily time capsule with our Instagrams and with everything. So I think this idea of putting something into a box to be discovered in the 100 years has a different meaning nowadays. Because back then, finding these photos and you, you, you hope that you find a treasure, you find a cat, you know, you can discuss that until the cows come home just to throw another animal under the truck. Um, but I, th I think in the digital age, it's a different story. I think what we should think about and I mentioned the family photos and the photos of the kids and, and everything. Uh, you know, we, we, now with the digital technology, we take 100,000 times more photos than we took in the olden days. I think when I was a little boy, there's like five or six photos uh, that I remembered. You know, now, now we have five or six photos every half an hour. Um, yeah. but, but the question that I have and I asked my children, my older one is 17. I said, how do you make sure that when you are 50, like 53, like I am right now, and you want to show your children how it was when you were a kid, will you actually still find those photos? Because those five, yeah. those five photos that of myself, they are printed in a photo album on my mom's uh, shelf. But will you, in 30, 40 years, still have access to your digital photos? So I, I, it might be a good idea to go back to this time capsule idea, print some of that stuff that we have, create something tangible and actually put it in a box. Because who knows if a USB stick in 40 years still fits into a computer then. You know what I mean? We have we have old hard drives that I can't plug in anymore because the, the, uh, the connectors have changed over time and I don't find an interface for it. And I don't yeah, know. I, and I'm sure you could, but how many years will it be before you can't? Yes, exactly. So I, I love this, this, this idea of time capsule as it reminds us to maybe go back to the old ways and maybe print out our most important things. Use some sticky glue, put them into an album, something that doesn't need to be charged, you know, something that we can look at even without power. <laughs> and, and you know what I, I was going to say is uh, right along the same lines, what I would do is I would take um, an antique stereoscope and I've got a bunch of them that I've collected from garage sales and whatever else. And I'd put some of my images. I do a lot of 3D uh, stereo stuff. I'd put some of my fun artsy ones, but I'd put a bunch of me and my family mm. in there with these really fancy stereo cards and uh, with the viewer in there that people probably wouldn't have seen for centuries. Yes. Uh, all right there for them to just put them in, drop them in the viewer, and just be amazed at, uh, at what life was back then. Uh, so that's, again, that idea of printing things out. There's nothing more permanent than, than physicality of, of an image. Yeah, I also um, may, may sound like a, a weird kind of business advice, but 
<clears throat> all my clients request digital files now. And I always send them prints. And it's strange how, how amazing the reaction is because it's, it gives them something to touch. It's such a different thing if you have something tangible that you can touch, you can feel, oh, look, it's so silky, the paper or whatever it is. Yes, they still get their digital files, but I make sure that they get something in their hands. You wouldn't believe, because we are human beings and we need that touch and we lose that a little bit in the digital age. And I believe that means also that photos uh, images that we create sometimes lose a little bit of their I guess perceived emotional value so if you give people something tangible if you put it in a box or if you deliver it to the client uh, it means something there's something to it because at the end of the day we can be as as uh, serious and as business as we want underneath we're flesh and blood, we're human beings, we have emotions. And, and if we want to or not, if we want to admit it or not, it, it does something to us. Yes, and I discovered a bunch of uh, albums from a trip that I took across Europe with my wife in 2009. And uh, we went through them with our daughter, who is uh, only uh, four years old now, so obviously wasn't born then. Um, and uh, she just had a, a whole lot of fun looking through that as a physical album. So just do yourself a favor. Make it a, a quarantine project. Make some prints. Yes. Uh, you don't have to go all cyanotype, uh, but make some prints. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so quickly, just picks of the week uh, as we wind down this show. It's going to be a shorter episode because I know you have to go, uh, Stefan. But um, my pick is, uh, is a filter. It's a close-up filter. And um, this is produced by Canon, and, and there's other people that make these too. Uh, I, I have some from Raynox, and they're equally as good, but they're not as big. They don't make them quite to the, the larger size. They've got a 77 millimeter uh, Canon close-up lens, the 500D, uh, not to be confused with the camera by the same name. Uh, and uh, this, I, I bought to just kind of add content to my book, which I was adding a little bit of extra things recently. And it's just a close-up filter, it, uh, but it's made of really high-quality uh, glass, uh, multiple optics. It's achromatic, and it's not just a cheap little magnifying glass kind of thing. It's sharp to the corners. Um, was I using it for that the other day? No, I, I, I was trying to turn my uh, my 3D capable smartphone into a 3D capable macro camera, and I taped it on the back of my Red Hydrogen One, and it actually worked. And I was able to take some photos of bugs in the backyard in 3D, which my daughter absolutely loved. Uh, and so that's my pick. It's not that expensive, but you can probably find them on the used market. And so long as it's in good shape, glass never goes bad. So the Canon 500D close-up filter is what I got. What do you have, Stephen? Well, I will be totally boring now. I, <laughs> I will, I suggest something that is quite probably left center. And it's something that I try to convince my daughter to do. It's called read books. You know, the one thing that has this, this feeling that it's, it's, it's kind of like an iPad, so you can swipe from page to page, but with the advantage that you don't have to plug it in. And um, lately, I try to give people... And you can see it in bright sunlight too, right? Yes, it's, it's quite amazing. And, and, you know, it, and you learn something. 
And lately when people ask me, okay, so what should I buy? Or what should I invest my time in? Or this and that and the other. I give them different book titles to read. And they all look, they always look at me as if I'm sort of from a different planet. But with my daughter, it makes sense because I want her to improve her schooling in English. And it, the more you read, the more intellectual you are, the more words you know. But it can also be super entertaining. So rather than, I find that's one of the best gears, the uh, best par, uh, pieces of gear you can buy is a real book. And if you want to, I can give you two or three uh, things. One, one that I think is absolutely amazing to read, especially when if you are in any kind of business or dealing with people, is called Never Split the Difference, and that's by Chris Foss. Have you ever heard of this book? I, I have. I haven't read it, but I have heard it uh, mentioned favorably by others. Yeah, Never Split the Difference. Chris Foss has worked for the FBI as a hostage negotiator. And uh, he, he explains several of the cases that he worked in, which, of course, is dead or alive kind of outcome. But then he applies this also to day-to-day -to -day business. How do, you, how do you negotiate bedtime with your children? Or how do you negotiate, based on his FBI background, uh, how, do you, do, do, how do you negotiate business deals and never split the difference? It's... It's one of those things that is as entertaining because I like these kind of Hollywood films as well, you know, the whole whole stuff. But it's not just entertaining. You actually also learn there's principles in there. And I just bought my daughter a car, a brand new car, because she now got, uh, got her license. And you wouldn't believe at that car, with that car sales dude, I applied every step-by-step step that Chris Foss explains in his book, and I got it down to about, well, a fraction of the price than he originally wanted because I, I just didn't split the difference. So that would be my tip of the day. <laughs> well, thank you. That's, uh, I'll, I'll make sure we get a link to that. I'm sure it's uh, readily available online on, on Amazon or elsewhere. I'll find a link and I'll put that in the show notes, which people can find at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, Stefan, thank you so much for being here on, on this episode. I'll have to have you back more frequently than uh, like every 100 episodes. I think you deserve uh, your voice to be heard on this platform. And, and I, I know that people enjoy it. Uh, and so thank you to everybody for listening uh, to another episode. And now it's time to stay in and shoot. <laughs>